0: Good morning. First of all, I'd like to thank the leadership for inviting me to be able to speak. Little did David and and others, David was the one who actually asked me to speak, but I'm sure it was the whole leadership decision for the whole summer program to get individuals from the congregation to speak. Little did they know that when they asked me to speak that uh, you were really in a very sweet spot for me. I actually spent four years at UBC studying. Plant science and I did my research project my thesis on apples homology <laughs> so when I was asked to speak on fruit I thought oh right <laughs> this is right up my alley and also when I my wife and I had a house and property in South Langley or South Surrey we had apple trees Italian plum trees green plums vineyards a little vineyard working around the barn cherry trees we had all kinds of fruit and I got to spend over the 20 years that we, almost 20 years I owned that property, I probably spent a couple hundred hours pruning trees. Also between 3rd and 4th year at university, I was sent out to Coston. Most people don't know where Coston is, it's 7 miles east of Carameas. It's been quite well known on the news recently with the Snow Lake, Snowy Lake fire. That it's at Coston. And I worked there for four months, and my job was basically restoring dilapidated orchards. And so I got to spend a lot of time with, with a whole family, the mental family. That's a whole kind of group of four family members, and they all had orchards, and I got moved from orchard to orchard. We did bud grafting, sign grafting. We did all kinds of interesting stuff. I learned a lot from these master orchardists for four months up in the southern Okanagan. So fruit is a really interesting subject. So let's read together Galatians chapter 5. I thought we would take the larger context and read Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Also, the idea that in fruit, it's a very powerful icon all the way through Scripture is the tree of life. And the tree of life bears fruit. The fruit of the righteous, Proverbs eleven thirty says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and those who win souls are wise. And it's connected because fruit is the end product of a process. You plant the seed... You get germination, you get the little cotyledons, then you get the sapling grows up and it produces finally flowers. You get the pollinators, those little apostles. Bees are little apostles, they're sent ones. They're sent to pollinate the fruit. And then after the long, slow process of time, you end up with the termination of the process is fruit. And the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and those who win souls is wise. And this is the connection in Proverbs. The righteous life through the power of the Spirit is productive, and you'll win souls. The end product of the righteous life, walking in the power of the Spirit, producing all the different fruit of the Spirit, is attractive, and you will win souls. The fruit of the righteous, the end product of the righteous life, is a tree of life. You will produce life. 30, sixteen hundred full. The neat thing about fruit, fruit has seed in it, so there's that power of reproduction built into the process of the fruit. And so when the believer is called to discipleship with Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit and attract others and win souls. Let's read Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 26. I'll do a little bit of a short commentary as we walk through these many verses. So I say let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now it says guide your life. I like the other translation which is a little more literal It says, walk by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. And why I like that particular translation is because walk is an imagery that's used all the way through the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the Lord God walking in the garden. Genesis chapter 5, you have Enoch walking with God. Genesis chapter 6, you have Noah walking with God. Genesis chapter 17, you have Abram walk before me and be blameless, God says to Abram. And so walking is really this icon of a walking relationship with God. And Jesus finally in Matthew 4 when he calls the disciples, he says, follow me, calling you by name. Follow me in a walking relationship and I will make you fishers of man, women, and children. So walk, be guided. Walk by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up the function that Jesus lay before the apostles. He takes up the ministry of Jesus in a walking relationship. Then it says, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Let's continue on. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of the sinful nature, what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. And, of course, the connection between the law of Moses, the law of Moses is everything to do with self performance That's the work of the flesh, self-performance. And you'll always find failure and condemnation. So when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under the obligation to the law of Moses, but you're looking th- through the Spirit to Jesus Christ, who empowers you to produce the cornucopia of the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the, result, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity lustful pleasures or sensuality. These are the aberrations, the mutations, the degradation of love. And you're going to find the works of the flesh are contrary and opposite to the fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to look at that in that way. So when you look at the, the defacement, the derailment of true love, you're going to get immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And then we have idolatry and sorcery. Sorcery and idolatry are in contrast to the products of a walking relationship with God will produce the fruit of joy. Joy in the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8 says. And peace. Jesus says, I give my peace to you, I give my joy to you. So a walking relationship with Jesus Christ. The Spirit spirit will produce in us joy and peace. Let me just quote a couple of verses. They're not up on the screen. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 11, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Jesus came to give us his joy. John chapter 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In Christ, grafted in Christ, the branch in the vine, you will have peace. In the world you will have troubles, tribulations and pressures, but take heart. Be encouraged, I've overcome the world. So, joy and peace are a product of a walking relationship to the power of the Spirit with Jesus Christ. Contrary to that, standing against that, at variance with that, is idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery are technologies and strategies with rites, spells, incantations, mantras that try and manipulate the spiritual world. You're the one in power, and you're trying to manipulate the idol and the spirit world with different techniques and strategies spiritual techniques and technologies that try and manipulate the spirit world you're in control through idolatry and with sorcery and standing against that is the product of joy and peace so idolatry and sorcery are would be called the religious sins then we have a long list of social vices this is dealing with not the vertical relationship with god and the product thereof, but it's now dealing with the horizontal relationship, the vices caused by the works of the flesh. Verse 20, idolatry, sorry, idolatry, sorcery, then hostility. There's ten of them here. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other things like these. Let me tell you again, as I've said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow or walk by the Spirit's leading. In every part of our lives, let us not be conceited or provoked to provoke, to provoke one another or be jealous of one another. And so there's really our text we're going to be working through. And uh, one more in Proverbs. I thought I'd read Proverbs. Actually, I found two Proverbs, but one is up on the screen. Better to be patient than powerful. Better to have self-control than to conquer a city because the fruit we're going to consider today is self-control. Proverbs 25:28. I found a couple days ago. It says this, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. So we're going to look at this wonderful feature of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for self-control. First of all, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a characteristic intrinsic to the very nature of God, self-control. God is in perfect control of His Spirit. And through the power of the Spirit, we have, are given, bequeathed through the Spirit of God, self-control. This is in contrast to the capricious, volatile, whimsical, gods and goddesses that populated the Greco-Roman world, superinflated images of depraved and corrupt humanity that's all the gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world and yet we have them, they're capricious they're volatile, they're whimsical God gives us self-control because self-control is a feature of God himself his very nature now we're going to look at, it's a fruit of the spirit let's look how the spirit works and I'm going to just quote Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 You'll always find the Spirit working in cooperation together with and harmony always with the Word of God. It says the earth was formless and empty. Tohu Wabohu is the Hebrew. It's a melodic thing to help you remember. Unformed and unfilled, God's going to construct the universe. He's going to form it, heavens, earth, oceans, and then he's going to fill it with animal kind and plant kinds. And the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. So what the Spirit is doing, he's taking the Word of God in heaven and making it real on earth and beautifying, structuring, and filling the universe. That's what the Spirit does. He takes the Word of God. God's will in heaven becomes real on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Spirit's function. He takes the will of God, the counsels of God, the will of God in heaven, and he makes them real in our life on earth, producing the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. We find this in John chapter 4, verse 24. With worship, John four twenty-four: 24, that God is spirit. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I would take spirit as a capital S, working on the lowercase ss. Spirit of God works on the human spirit in truth, worshiping God in spirit and truth. Spirit without truth is mysticism. Truth without spirit is sterile formal legalism. The Spirit always takes the word and makes it real. In our salvation, in John chapter 3, verse 5, we'll read this next. Jesus replied to Nicodemus, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. First of all, water there is symbolic of the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3, verse 5. It's not dealing with water baptism here it's the idea and Jesus is importing the symbolism of Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 you have clean water is sprinkled upon the house of Israel upon their hard heart and he replaces their hard heart and cleanses them and gives them a heart of flesh that beats with and longs for and yearns for the will of God. So the idea of water is the idea of the cleansing action of the Holy Spirit born of water in the spirit you must be born again of the Spirit. That's one component. 1 Peter 1.23, 1 Peter 1, You have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal, living Word of God. In other words, this is the other component of salvation. Born of the Spirit, born of the living, abiding Word of God. The Spirit takes the Word of God and makes application and washes and regenerates. You'll always find the Spirit in cooperation with the Word. You'll never find the Spirit without the Word. You'll never find the Word without the Spirit. They work together in harmony, and that's the function of the Spirit hovering over the waters, structuring the universe, making God's will on earth as it is in heaven, and then taking God's second creational will. Of course, the first creation, second creation is being born again, the creation in Christ. So the Spirit takes the Word. Now we'll look at the, the second thing is the the very concept that self-control is the nature of God. He's going to give us some feature of His nature through the power of the Spirit. And we're going to look at some verses here. I remember many, many years ago, probably in the 1970s, my mom and dad were watching a program, what was called Front Page Challenge. Some of you might know that program. It's the longest television program, uh, non-news program, in CBC history. It ran for 37 to 38 years. And in Front Page Challenge, you had a panel of men and women, very sharp, witty individuals. A lot of them were journalists. They were very sharp. They they really knew their subject matter. And you'd have in the corner, in the dark, you'd have somebody who was questioned. This person in the corner, when you couldn't see them, they were always questioned about something famous. They were famous for something, and you had to ask them, kind of like 20 questions. You had to ask them to try and guess what they were newsworthy for. And I remember when I was making my lunch for school days, mom and dad were watching on a little black and white television. Color didn't come until the 70s, early 70s. Little black-white television, front-page challenge. And there was a panelist, his name was Gordon Sinclair. Sharp, witty, intelligent, well-versed, and anti-Christian. And they finally identified that the person, that the special guest there, they finally guessed that this was an astronaut that walked on the moon. And for some reason, I don't know why, but some reason, Gordon Sinclair, out of nowhere, out of the bolt out of the blue, asked him about, well, how about the genocide? He realized that this astronaut was a Christian who'd walked on the moon. They asked him, well, how about the genocide of Jericho, killing men, women, children, animals? Genocide, what kind of God do you have? So right out of, it's out of, totally out of context, Gordon Sinclair, he had a chip on his shoulder and he, and he just wanted to attack, and he did that right on television, national television, That's a hard place to be when you're talking about the killing of men, women, children, and animals under Joshua. So that's why I think we need to talk about God of judgment and the self-control of God. Let's read Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to just use this as an introduction. Then we'll look at three or four different examples of God's self-control. Isaiah 42, 14 to 16. He will say, this is God speaking, self talk I have long been silent. Yes, I've restrained myself. That's self-control. Perfect control over his spirit. But now, like a woman in labor, I will cry and groan and pant. This is most unseemly, it seems. I wouldn't quote this if it wasn't scripture, but it's scripture. God is waiting, yearning, longing for the day of the eradication of evil and the installation of everlasting righteousness. Righteousness. And he's controlling his spirit because there's a timeline that he has implemented. And he's controlling himself, restrained. But now, like a woman in labor, I will cry and groan and pant. I will level the mountains and hills. I'll blight all their greenery. I will turn rivers into dry land. I will dry up all their pools. I will lead blind Israel down a new path, guiding them along an unfamiliar way. I will brighten the darkness before them and smooth out the road ahead of them yes i'll do these things i will not forsake them now one thing about isaiah 42 if you read isaiah 42 49 50 52 53 those are visions of the anonymous servant of the lord so the the theme of these chapters 42 49 50 and 52 53 is the anonymous servant of the lord jesus christ and the salvation that he brings in and god is yearning for waiting for longing for that day When he'll bring full uh, full implementation of the salvation that he plans. But he restrains himself. He restrains himself. Let's look at some examples. I'm going to give you four examples, quick examples. Genesis 6, verse 3. The Lord said, my spirit will not abide for men forever. Free his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Here's the introduction to the scenario where God is going to judge the world in a cataclysmic flood. He's going to give 120 years before that comes. He's waiting for 120 years. The world is spinning down in a vortex of ungodliness and violence. And God is waiting. Genesis 15, verse 16. This is a very famous passage. This is when God cut a covenant with Abraham. He's going to make promises to Abraham. And then he says to Abraham, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. In other words, Egypt is going to be the home of the Israelite nation for 400 years under Egypt. 400 years. For the sins of the Amorites, one of the seven tribes of the Canaanites, did, or do not yet warrant their destruction. Or Another verse, another translation, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here's God patiently restrained, waiting 400 years for the Amorites and the seven tribes of the Canaanites as they corrupt. And he places a man in the presence. His name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, Genesis chapter 14. There is a testimony in the land, the living testimony of the living God, a priest-king in the order of Melchizedek. And God waits 400 years, gives them the testimony of Melchizedek. He is not allied with the four kings against the five kings that kidnapped Abraham's nephew Lot, He's not allied with the wicked nations because Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. God is waiting, and he gives a testimony. Gordon Sinclair didn't know that. He waited and gave 400 years with the testimony of Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. Isaiah chapter 61. So we've gone from 120 years of God's restraint to 400 years, four generations, 400 years. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. I'm gonna, we're going to read it twice, actually. This is from Isaiah. Then Jesus is going to quote this verse in his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. Let's read it together. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to cover the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time, better translation, the year of the Lord's favor or grace has come. And with it, the day of God's anger against his enemies, or the day of God's wrath. Let's look at Luke chapter 4. Now, notice that Jesus is going to quote this when he is giving his first sermon in Nazareth, where he grew up. He's going to unfurl the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he's going to quote Isaiah 61. But there's a surprise here. Let's read it together. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring news to the poor, good news to the poor. That's gospel news. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Next. <laughs> and that the time or the year of the Lord's favor has come. That's actually the next uh, the, the slide before that. That the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time or the year of the Lord's favor, Yahweh's grace has come period. You know what Jesus does? He takes the period and he moves it into the middle of the sentence and cuts off the sentence in midstream. Because it's the year of God's favor, Yahweh's favor. And after the year of Yahweh's favor comes the day of wrath of God, when God is going to sum up. We saw this in Isaiah 42. When he's going to come down like a woman in labor, and he's going to bring in salvation in the judgments of the earth and the freeing of the people of God. The year of God's favor, the year of Yahweh's favor has been going on for 2,000 years and it isn't over. And the day of vengeance of God, which Jesus cut off because it's later. God has been waiting and restrained himself for how long now? 2,000 years and counting. 120, 400, 2,000 and counting, roughly speaking. Waiting. Then Revelation 14, verse 15. This is little passage that deals with the end and another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud and by the way this is the imagery from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 where you have Jesus coming back from the clouds of heaven crowned to bring in salvation deliverance from the people of God the judgment of sin and the whole world celebrates with God judging the world in righteousness and bringing in joy and gladness forever Another angel came from the temple, shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, swing the sickle for the time the harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. ESV says fully ripe. If you look that word up in the Greek, it's an amazing word. The word is withered. The crop is withered. The grain is withered. The grapes are turned to raisins. And the idea behind this particular word that's used, it's used of when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered. It's used of the ground when the, the sower goes out and sows on the rocky ground and the sun comes up and the plants wither. This is withered, and the idea behind this is Jesus, when he finally judges, he's left the crop for judgment until it's withered and turned to raisins or dried wheat, depending on what, what, what the crop is. This is the patience of God. This is the, self, the self-control, the restraint of God, who's waited and waited. Second Peter chapter three, Peter actually devotes a whole chapter to why God has waited. He's long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish but all almost come to life. Desires all to be saved. He waits and scoffers who say, Where's the promise of his coming? They scoff at the fact that he's coming at all. God's patience and the elongation of the time frame is simply a feature of God's self control. I've restrained myself totally in check, waiting for the movement of the gospel to all every generation, to all the people's nations, all the ethno-linguistic groups that are out there. God is a God of patience and self-control. And Peter talks about that self-control in 2 Peter 3. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit, and just very quickly, notice how the fruit of the Spirit is in contrast to the works of the flesh. We've looked at it a little bit, but let's just look at it just for a moment. The works of the flesh, look at them. Let's, I'll just read them out to you. Particularly the social sins. Idolat- uh, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, road rage, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties. They're all contrary to each other. It's the works of the flesh, plural. They're fighting. It's like a cat fight. You see the tumult. You see the restlessness, the fermentation, the tangledness, the variance, the evil, The wretchedness of the works of the flesh. They're all fighting each other. It's the self-destruction of sin. And that's what the works of the flesh do. They're self-destructive in nature. If we follow those sinful vices, you'll destroy yourself. Whereas the fruit of the spirit is singular. It's fruit. It's not plural. Because it's harmonious. It's blended. It's cooperative. It's coordinated. It's blessed. It's beneficial. The fruit of the spirit is single. And so we see how they contrast. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 5720 describes the work of the flesh. But those who reject me, this is in Isaiah 57, they're like the restless sea, which is never still, continually churning up mud and dirt. There's no peace for the wicked, says my God. So the view in Isaiah, and this view is actually important in Revelation, the view is this turbulent sea. It's choppy, the mud is slopping up. There's this idea of this restlessness. That's when I, in Revelation 21, when it says, in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more sea, he's not talking about the Pacific Ocean here, not talking about the Atlantic or all the different seven seas of the world. Seas are beautiful and they're populated with animal life, creature life, phytoplankton and zooplankton and beautiful animals, from the small to the large. It's not going to be the elimination of the oceans. The sea in Revelation is the symbol of the turbulent nations. In Revelation 13, out of the sea, of the turbulent sea, importing from um, Daniel chapter 7, are these sea monsters, the succession of empires that destroy. their anti-Christian against the people. People of God. And so the seas of Revelation is the turbulent seas of the anti-Christian, volatile, tumultuous, turbulent seas of wickedness. When there's no more sea in Revelation, that means there's no more turbulent nations, anti-Christian in nature. That's what the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, 8, and 9. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. For this light, or the fruit of the light, produces only what is good and right and true. And this is the beautiful thing about Christianity. You want to produce spiritual fruit? How do you do it? You get it to the light. You put your potted plant out of the tool shed or the garden shed, out of the closet, and you put it in the light. How do you produce fruit? Get into the light. Expose yourself to the light of God's presence. How do we do that? We've already been doing that. Worship, prayer, meditation, service to the people of God. Bible study. You get to feed into the treasure trove of the riches of the Word of God. And these are ways, spiritual disciplines, that put us into the light of God's presence. And guess what happens? It's like a tree and the photosynthetic energy coming from the sun. And what does it do? It produces. You've got the pollination, you've got the irrigation, you've got the little apostles, the the bees and the different kinds of insects. And they're producing it. All you have to do is put yourself in a position of being exposed to the light and the fruit will be produced. I'm I'm just going to take five minutes and wrap this up. Um, Look at the usages. The usages of the self-control in the New Testament. That particular word, self-control, is only used about five or six times in the New Testament. It's actually a very rare word. We've already looked at it in Galatians, and let's look at it in Acts chapter 24. This is a case where Paul is under house arrest. He's being interrogated by Felix, the governor. A few days later, Governor Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul. They listened as he told about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness, Self-control, there's our word, and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. So in Galatians and Acts chapter 24, the primary use of self-control is in contradistinction or in contrast to the works of the flesh, where you have the prostitution and adulteration of love. Instead of love, you have Immorality impurity, sensuality. Now the way, the image that I would use here is a river system. We have a beautiful river system running through British Columbia. It's the watershed of about one quarter of British Columbia is the Fraser River Basin. Little rivulets, they finally get the Fraser River. Now think of everything about a river system, it has banks. I want you to think of the banks as self-control. When those banks are breached, the river ceases to be productive for irrigation, for the spawning of salmon going up to the river, the Cheesewpaw Basin, uh, it becomes a destructive. Whenever you breach one or both of the riverbanks, you've got a catastrophic flood. Self-control is the control. The Spirit moves like a river system, and by the way, the Spirit's image is a river, is a, is a river system. Revelation twenty-two: the throne of God and of the Lamb, and from the throne comes this river, this river of life. That's the image of the Holy Spirit: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has riverbanks. These are the riverbanks. Riverbank number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Riverbank number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the riverbanks because the Spirit flows within the parameters of, and He promotes what? The Word of God. And the Word of God can be conceptualized as two commands. Love God absolutely and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the riverbanks. Listen to how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to hurry here. The first one is don't live in such a way that you prostitute, adulterize the aberration of true love, the spirit that flows honoring God and honoring your neighbor. You would never have pornography and prostitution, the pedophiles, and all those things that are an open running sore on planet Earth if there was love for your neighbor. You wouldn't have that. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Don't you realize, this is the second usage, the first usage is don't live according to the cultural values of a life out of control. Number two, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize? Run, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined. That's our word self-control. Athletes are self-controlled with diet and the regime of exercise. In their training... They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body under control. Like an athlete, training to do what it should otherwise, what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, for sake of time, just this. Paul is dealing with First Corinthians chapter nine about a Christian's relationship to their neighbor. The neighborhood of the people of faith and people outside faith, and he says, "I have liberty, but I'm going to make sure my liberty is used in such a way that I promote the ultimate benefits of the gospel." And he says this in Galatians 5:13-14. He says the same thing. So it's in relationship to the body of Christ and people outside the body of Christ. I am going to suspend my own personal freedoms and desires if it can further the gospel. Galatians 5. For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's thinking about your neighbor, your brother and sister, your neighbor across the street. Serve one another in love. For the whole law could be summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another or consuming one another. That's Christian cannibalism, by the way, when you turn in your fighting. He says, serve one another. So self-control is in relationship to I'm not going to participate in the ungodliness of my culture, the Greco-Roman and the culture in which I live here. I'm going to have the riverbanks of love for God and honoring him absolutely and loving my neighbor as myself. And then secondly, it's used in relationship to my liberties will be curtailed or limited if it will further and benefit my neighbor my gospel, serving my brothers and sisters and the last usage is in Second Peter, this is the third usage Second Peter and let's just run through this and I'll finish with just a comment in view of all this, that is God's great and precious promises, in view of God's promises make every effort to respond to God's promises, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and to moral excellence add knowledge and to knowledge add self control I'm going to stop there he has a list of seven, and it's crowned with love. And we won't go into the details of it, but the idea is this that to your faith, building on your faith, a morally excellent life. And to a morally excellent life, good works, serving one another in love. Add knowledge. And knowledge in Peter is very much the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He opens and he closes the epistle on that theme. But guess what? Knowledge is a dangerous product. Why is that? Have you heard of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. Love edifies. 1 Corinthians 8. Love edifies. Knowledge has something built in that's dangerous. It's a dangerous commodity. As you grow in your experience, as you grow spiritually, you can get puffed up and conceited. And so he says, so add to knowledge. As you grow in your faith, self-control. Last verse. Romans 12, verse 3. I give, and the worship team can come up. Thank you. I give each of you this warning. Romans 12, verse 3. Don't think you're better than you really are. Honest evaluation. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Measuring yourselves yourselves by the faith God has given you or according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. Each of us have different capacities. It could be a thimble. It might be a bucket. It might be a bell. Different capacities evaluate ourselves faithfully as God has equipped us what can we do, what are our skill sets what are our limitations and walk within that evaluation and don't get puffed up and conceited and get self-devouring each other and so those are the three uses to, to self-control in a relationship to an ungodly culture self-control in, which, in where I will tur- curtail my personal liberties for the benefit of others and self-control in my self-evaluation on what, who I am how God has gifted me, where he hasn't where my limits are and to walk within that um, knowledge. Let's pray Father we thank you for the fruit of the spirit of self-control and we bless you for your profound repeated examples of restraining your judgment, waiting and waiting and waiting and we're still waiting for the judgment of the earth but we thank you that it brings salvation, you desire all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So we bless you and pray for our own participation in self-control. For your name'sake, sake, we say this. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're gonna